Stories That Matter Studios. I'm Nance Haxton, and this is The Streets of Your Town, The Journo Project. This podcast is all about recognising great Australian journos wherever they may be around the world. With the media in Australia under increasing attack and hard-won freedoms under threat, there's no better time to celebrate and highlight the work of the top journalists from down under. This journalist has had decades of experience as an international correspondent in countries from Afghanistan, Africa and South America. But it was when he was imprisoned in an Egyptian jail for 400 days that his reporting became truly world-renowned. Peter Grester is now a champion of media freedom in Australia, calling for an urgent review of the many national security laws passed by federal parliament in recent years, saying they limit and even criminalise the legitimate work of journalists with deeply damaging ramifications to the very foundations of our democracy. In this episode of Streets of Your Town, The Journo Project, he takes us behind the scenes of how he ended up in that Egyptian jail on what he describes as a run-of-the-mill story that he never expected could end in such incredible circumstances. We also hear the background to his illustrious career before and since, such as how he was awarded the prestigious internationally recognised Peabody Award for his documentary on Somalia. Peter, thank you so much for joining the Streets of Your Town, the Journo Project. It's fantastic to join you. It's really exciting. <laughs> Peter, here we are sitting in the sun in Brisbane at a cafe near your office at the University of Queensland. This must be quite a contrast to the life that you have led. You began as an Indrapilly State High School student. Were you thinking of journalism even back then? Gosh, no, not really. And, and that's funny because that's just down the road here, mm-hmm. uh, not too far from where we're... It's really we're coming home. Coffee. It is kind of coming home and it was weird because I I left Brisbane as fast as my little legs could carry <laughs> me. <laughs> as soon as I finished high school and university, I, I was gone. Um, I, I couldn't wait to get out of this town. It just felt a little bit too small and too parochial for me. I know a lot of Brisbaneites will promptly come after me. Uh, certainly, <laughs> even then, it certainly is a diff- it was a different city oh, to it, what it is now. It, it was so. a very different city. Mm. And, and, you know, I'm also a very different person to the one that I was back then that was desperately interested in, in the world, the larger world. But let's go back to uh, Indrapilly State High, where I, I had no idea what the hell I wanted to do, really. I had not a clue. In fact, I remember... Um, you know, here in Queensland we had um, the Queensland Tertiary Admission Centre, QTAC form, this yes. big form with all the possible courses that. That, that you could do and, and the big book with all of those courses and you had to fill out the QTAC form. And I remember the mid- midnight before the, that form was due, I knew I wanted to study something but I had no idea what on earth I wanted to do. So I thought, well, look, if I don't know what I do want to do, let me get rid of everything that I, I don't want to do. <laughs> let's, cross every, let's start crossing stuff off to narrow the field a little bit. And I started crossing off um, accounting, no way, architecture, uh-oh, you know, law, no medicine, law, science, uh-oh. and I kept crossing and crossing and crossing until I got to the end of the book and realised the only thing that didn't turn me off, the only thing I hadn't crossed off was journalism. 
And I figured, well, I, I guess that's it then. <laughs> that, that's that's my destiny. <laughs> that would actually be good advice even for students. I just think the pressure on people these days to have such a clear idea of what they're going to yeah. do from such a young age. And yours was a process of elimination. It was a process of elimination. <laughs> I still wasn't entirely sure that it was the right thing to do. But in the end, I went. I took a year off, a gap year. I was an exchange student and, and realised then by the time I came back that actually it, it was the right thing for me. And you got the fire in your belly. Where did you go? from there? I went to South Africa as an exchange student. Um, of course, South Africa back in, in the um, early 80s was a very interesting place, a really messed up place that was hadn't really begun to shake off apartheid. And so it was, you know, there were all sorts of really big social and political issues. And I realised that actually being able to look into that, to see it, to understand it, to examine it as a journalist, was, would have been a, a fantastic thing to do. And, and so I, I think that's really the, 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 the idea that started to settle into my brain. And you started that storytelling even then? Um, a little bit? I, I guess I did. But mm. look, I'll be honest with you. For me, journalism, the storytelling, the writing thing has always been... Um, for a lot of people, a lot of journalists, obviously, it's, it's the writing is their passion. For me, writing was the excuse. In fact, I remember, <laughs> I remember um, after I'd applied for my, my course, and I just started it, and um, I remember bumping into an old high school friend of mine who asked me, as you do, you know, what, what are you doing? And I said, I've just started the journalism degree. And she just went, oh, my God. I said, what's wrong? And she said, endless English essays for the rest of your life. <laughs> She's right, my God, what have I done? The journalism was the kind of excuse that I, I needed to go off and have all of these adventures, to indulge my curiosity. The, the writing part of it wasn't really the thing that inspired me. What did inspire me was that licence to indulge a curiosity. And from there you went to the BBC yep. eventually. What are some of the highlight stories that you can remember from that time? Well, my first big foreign assignment, I guess, was Afghanistan correspondent for the BBC and Reuters in 1995 and that was an incredible experience because we saw the emergence of the Taliban back then we saw a lot of big historical shifts in fact I remember when I applied for that job the BBC asked me the job interview you know why I felt Afghanistan was important because again in, in the 90s nobody knew or really cared about Afghanistan and I said look Afghanistan produces the two things that the West is most concerned about for its security. One is narcotics, and they're the world's biggest supplier of drugs, and the other is Islamic extremists. You were and ahead of your time. Yeah, it seems, <laughs> it seems like, it feels a little bit prescient now, just uh, thinks, <laughs> looking sure. back. Uh, in ways I didn't really expect. It must be incredible watching it even play out now, Peter, as well, with that experience. Yeah, it is. And I've been back to Afghanistan a few times, and I fell in love with the country back then. Mm. Um, so Afghanistan was a really, it was important for me for two reasons. Professionally, I learned more about my craft, I think, mm. than I did at any other, in any other assignment, because it was really critically important. I mean, security was a big deal. Afghanistan was a country mm. in, locked in civil war. And the BBC was, without doubt, the most important media organisation, both inside Afghanistan and outside, for coverage of, of, of what was taking place because the BBC was, internally, the BBC was the only news organisation that anybody really paid any attention to. Um, we broadcast in Farsi and Pashto, and there were no other local news services that anybody ever trusted. The BBC was it. In fact, it was nicknamed the Big Mullah in Afghanistan. 
Um, so you had all your stories translated? All the stories, oh, every fantastic. single word translated. Oh, and yeah. so whatever we reported on, whatever we covered, mm. we would end up with feedback instantly, the ne very next day. And of course, in a store, in a place which is awash with weapons, in which people would have no, no, not a second thought about pulling the trigger on somebody who they felt had, had disrespected them or, or, you know, who they felt was, was showing any bias. It was absolutely critically important, not just editorially and ethically, but, you know, for the sake of my own security that I get it right. But I think also I learned more about myself, my capacity to operate in those kinds of environments. It was an incredibly important formative experience where you had to survive and if you, you had to figure it out. If you didn't figure it out, then frankly, you, you know, you, you could find yourself in, in very, very serious trouble. And you felt that responsibility? Did that weigh on you at the time? I felt an enormous sense of responsibility, mm. but also an enormous sense of empowerment because, yes, let's face it, the one thing that journalists want is for their stories to make a difference. I mean, it's important that we tell True. the stories and that, and that's, that's really, that is really key. But we also want our stories to move the dial in some way. And in Afghanistan, you could see when you did a story, you would get a reaction. Sometimes it was positive, sometimes it was negative, but there was almost never no reaction. You know, people would, every other day, people would, would stop you in the street and say, hey, I, you know, I heard that story, but, you know, did you know that, uh, that you missed out X, Y, and Z? Or, you know, I think, thought you missed this particular angle. You know, you'd have you'd walk into any interview with, with, you know, one of the Mujahideen commanders or some government official and... The first 10 minutes was always getting some kind of lecture about the, the story, the last story you did. Um, and so it was crucially important to Afghanistan, but also, again, you know, you'd, you'd see your, your own reports quoted pretty much verbatim on UN assessments of what was taking place in Afghanistan. Um, so it was, it was, it was really, it was really empowering in that respect as well. And I imagine quite um, challenging from a practical journalistic perspective of, you know, you've got to get both sides of the story. There's plenty more than two sides to a story well, in somewhere like Afghanistan and, and really in many places. And in fact, <laughs> I felt as though we had a responsibility to cross the, not just a, a professional mm. responsibility, but actually I felt that it was in our own interests to cross the front lines, that it was actually the safer thing to do, to cross the lines and get all, speak to all of the, the warring factions. Uh, and the reason I say that was because I, even though we knew it was physically risky to get in a vehicle and drive across the front lines to speak to the factions on, on the other side, we also recognised that in an environment like Afghanistan, a white, clean-shaven bloke was going to stand out like a sore thumb. <laughs> and pretty soon, at some point or other, someone on the other side of the lines was going to see me through their rifle sights. And it was really important for that, that guy not to see me as the enemy, not to, not to feel justified in pulling the trigger. So I felt that everybody needed to understand that we were not participants to the conflict, that we were neutral observers. And, and so whenever we could, we exercised what I felt was our right to cross the lines to speak to all parties to the, to the dispute. And so... Yes, it was risky doing that at some level, but I always felt that it was a lesser risk than actually 
being seen as, as the enemy by the by one side or another. What a lesson to learn early on and how that would play into future experiences, Peter. But from there, how do you choose where to go from Afghanistan? It's pretty hard to choose somewhere that could possibly match that level yeah. of adrenaline, I would have thought. Yeah, it, it, it was a bit difficult, although Yugoslavia helped. <laughs> Um, mm. I went to Yugoslavia with Reuters at the time, to Belgrade. This was just after the, the war, although there was still a lot of big stories. Mm. Uh, we saw um, the Belgrade spring through that period in which the mayor of Belgrade, Zoran Djindjic, was trying to win control of the city from Slobodan Milosevic. A lot of very serious internal struggles for political power and also the fallout of, of the end of the Bosnian war. But I wasn't there that long. I was there for a year and then went to the BBC in London for three years to help launch News 24, mm. uh, which was a big experience. Mm. But ultimately, I also realised that actually I had a passion for, for international news. And so I went to Latin America and had um, five years in Mexico, Chile and Argentina covering pretty much everything from, from Mexico on south. And again, another crazy period where we saw the fall of what was then known as the Nopal Curtain, the Cactus Curtain. We saw the fall of the PRI, the Partido Revolucional Institucional. It was a huge deal for Mexico at that period. We also saw the collapse of, of the Argentine economy in 2001. In the middle of all of that, I went, to, went back to Afghanistan for that post 9-11 war, which, you know, which changed everything really for, for, for so many of us. And it's like you really were listening to that sense of adventure that you had from your early days, though. You went back to that and honoured that. Yeah, it's funny, Nance. I don't feel as though I was sort of honouring it as much as just taking up opportunities, wonderful opportunities to really explore. I mean, as, as you know, there's a big difference between visiting a place as a tourist and visiting it as a, as a journalist. Mm -hmm. As a journalist, as I said earlier, you, you have a licence to, to stick your nose into other people's business. That's why we are there. And so you have a chance to really see and experience a place with a depth and an intimacy that you just don't ever get as a tourist. For me, it was being like a kid in a candy shop. All of these chocolates, right? <laughs> for the picking, you know, you just sort of choose whichever one you wanted to go and, and, and try. And so, you know, I've moved. I've, I remember speaking to Zapatista rebels in Mexico, in southern Mexico, in Chiapas, and you know, going off to, to do stories about the rebels in Colombia, the FARC rebels in Colombia. We saw the elections that brought Hugo Chavez to power in, in uh, Venezuela. You know, all of these incredible moments that I still feel very privileged to be a part of. And that, that saying that you're on the front line of history that you're really and that that first draft of history to yeah I, I actually like Hugh Remington's line from, from his book Minefields in which he says that journalists are at the hinges of history those pivotal moments when things bend when things change I think that's a really good way of seeing it and understanding can you tell us a bit about your Peabody Award? It was just such that's such a significant international award, and it's good to pay tribute to the work that you did there. Yeah, well, thanks for saying that. Mm. It's funny, um, the Peabody. I didn't really set out to do it. In fact, the, the film that I made that turned into the Peabody was something that I felt. Well, for a start, I did it for two reasons. It was a film about Somalia, a portrait of Mogadishu in particular, an attempt to really understand what was tearing the country apart, to, to sort of explain to people who really only had a vague awareness of what was taking place in Somalia, what really was going on, why, what was driving it, and the kind of situation that the country had found itself in. 
And I was at a stage in my career where I was desperate to find work. And the BBC had stopped, the, the freelance budget had pretty much dried up, drawn up, uh, dried up. I was working as a freelance across East Africa. It was very, very difficult to find jobs. And I needed to find a big project that I could get my teeth into. And five years earlier, I'd been in, in Somalia on my first trip in with my producer, Kate Payton. We were doing a whole series of stories about the country as it was emerging at that point. And someone took a shot, put a bullet in Kate's back, and she died as a result of that. Now, I had to pull out of Somalia very, very quickly, as you can imagine. Oh, but what a horrendous experience for you, Peter. It, it mm. was pretty horrific. It mm. was the worst time of my of my life, um, I'd say worse than even mm. imprisonment in Egypt. Mm. You know, losing a friend and colleague like that is, is, is extremely tough. But I also felt quite bloody-minded about it. I felt that the assholes who'd, who'd done that were trying to send a message to us, to, to mm. frighten us away from Somalia. And I always felt that we had both gone, both of us had gone in fully understanding the risks that we were involved with, but also feeling that I, it would be dishonouring Kat's memory to, to run away and never return. And so I conceived of this idea, this, this portrait of Mogadishu, basically to, to finish the work that Kate and I never, never managed to, to, to get done, never managed to achieve on that first trip. Most of Somalia, certainly about two-thirds of Mogadishu, were under the control of a group called Al-Shabaab, and they had laid siege to the government, the internationally recognised and supported government, which had pulled back into a relatively small triangular-shaped enclave in Mogadishu, and they were being protected by African Union troops. And I found a way of getting into the city on the other side of the lines, outside of, of on the, in, in the Al-Shabaab-controlled areas, and so the idea was to spend part of the story, part of the film, inside the wire with the African Union troops looking at the government and so on, but also a part of it outside the wire, beyond the AU um, protected enclave. And in the end, it turned out to be quite a powerful film. Um, I, I didn't want it to be about me and Kate, because obviously what was taking place in Somalia at the time was incredibly, incredibly tough. For, all, for, for hundreds of thousands of people. And in fact, what Kate, what I'd been through was pretty typical of what everyone in, in, in Somalia had experienced. You couldn't find anybody in the country that hadn't lost a close friend or relative at some point. And so while that experience needed to inform the project, I wanted to make sure that it wasn't about us, it was about Somalis themselves. I think that says something about your practice, though, as a journalist too, Peter, and perhaps in contrast to some of the, the way that journalism is done now with the focus on the journalists and the live crosses. And, but you were obviously very conscious of telling that broader story and that it wasn't just yeah. about your experience. I understand why it's happened when journalists mm. become key parts of the story. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a storytelling technique, I guess, and, and it's important in that respect. But I always also still worry when we become bigger than the story that we're reporting on. You've always got to hold that in perspective. To elevate your own role in the story above those of the people that you're reporting on always feels to me to be a, a, a huge conceit and something that we really need to, to push back against. I really don't like that.
And then really to, to think of your time in Egypt, did you ever imagine that uh, it could turn on, a, on you the way that it did, I suppose? No, no. In fact, Dan's almost embarrassed about it because the work that we were doing, the journalism that we were doing in Egypt was pretty mundane. It wasn't anything special. As you would know, as any journalist who spent time in the field, particularly those who've worked on rounds, I understand that the more time you spend on a story, the more you get a feel for the edges of that story and the more you understand how far you can push things before you get some sort of blowback from those involved whether it's the authorities or other belligerents other actors and so on but in a story like Egypt because I didn't know the country I've only been there for a few weeks and I was only treading water I wasn't trying to push boundaries win awards or anything I was simply trying to keep over the story keep the stories ticking over so that um, so that our, our audiences wouldn't lose sight of it, that we'd still, you know, sort of keep the story in, in, in the programs. But there was nothing revolutionary about what we were doing. I've done that plenty of times. I've pissed off enough governments and, and rebels <laughs> To know and when so you're doing to, it. To know when I'm doing it. And, and, and I've been prepared for those risks. And I kind of occasionally sat down, waited for some kind of blowback. And occasionally it happens, you know, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But Egypt was not one of those Ooh. situations. And it happened so um, swiftly too, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, it did. Mm. You know, I was busy getting ready, get, getting ready to go out with a friend of mine for dinner, someone who I hadn't seen for a few years, Bethany Bell, an old BBC colleague and friend. And she and I, I was going to have a good evening. And I was getting dressed and there was a knock on the door and national security agents burst into my hotel room and ransacked the place, marched me off and threw me into a police cell and told me I was under arrest on terrorism charges. Oh. <laughs> what, what the hell? <laughs> you know, I mean, these things happen too. You know, in some areas, some places, it's, it's an occupational hazard. But again, it's happened to me before. But in most cases, you, you know, you know how it works. You can talk your way out of it a bit, well, You talk your way out yeah. or, or it's just an attempt to rattle a few cages. There's some phone calls. Um, obviously, our contacts books have some fairly senior officials in there, so yeah. our bosses are going to make some few high-level calls to some ministers and so on. There might be some awkward exchanges, but ultimately, you know, we'd be out in a few hours, maybe a day or so, and that would be it. So when we were told what the charges were, being members of a terrorist organisation, aiding and abetting a terrorist organisation, financing a terrorist organisation, broadcasting false news with intent to undermine national security. These charges were crazy. These were serious, hardcore terrorism offences, about as serious as you could possibly get, short of actually pulling the trigger on, a, on an AK-47 in a crowded room. And it, it just made no sense to me. It really didn't. And did you think that you would be able to talk your way out of it even at that point? When did that sort of dawn on you that this was much more serious? Um, I think at each stage in the process we thought that it wouldn't go, it wouldn't continue. Because the gap between what we'd been accused of doing, like those very serious terrorism charges, and the reality of what we had actually been doing, which was that, to my mind, some pretty mundane journalism, that, that gap was so wide that I couldn't see how anybody could conceivably make that connection, how they could have twisted the evidence of what we'd been up to and, and somehow concluded that we'd been involved in terrorism. And so I thought, look, the prosecution is never going to... They're just going to see this as, as, a, as a waste of time and, and, and let us go. They won't bring this to trial. And then when the trial began, I thought, well, surely the judges will see this is just, this is just embarrassing for the court. They'll throw it out. 
And as the trial went on, it became clear that we'd have to go the distance. But I thought, well, as anybody else who was watching the evidence would also recognise, there was no evidence. I mean, like zero evidence. Not even, you know, sort of loosely circumstantial evidence that you could twist into some kind of conspiracy. I mean, it just wasn't there. And we thought, well, you know, the court surely has to throw this out because it's just embarrassing for the judicial system. When we were convicted and sentenced to seven years, I was just king hit. Honestly, I just couldn't believe that that, that had been the outcome. I think so many people remember your face when and those awful images. It must have been just incredible to hear and to know that you were the subject of that story as well, as you were saying, and not actually reporting on the story. Yeah, and that's well. never supposed to happen, really. But it just isn't, you know. <laughs> if you're doing your job right, as I as I yes. knew we were, then then you know your professionalism, your professional ethics, your neutrality, your integrity, your commitment to balance and accuracy and fairness would have seen us through. And But having said that, I think that's also why we got as much support as we did, because I think people watching from the outside also understood just how ridiculous, how utterly ridiculous those charges were. were fact, you, did you get an idea of how much the world was... That worldwide movement had swept behind you? You know, it's funny you should say that because my, my brothers, when they come in mm. for visits, they would say, look, you don't understand how big this has become. <laughs> and I, I'd humour them. I'd say, yeah, sure, I'm, I'm sure I don't understand it. But in my own heart, I'm thinking, look, I'm a journalist. You know, this is the pond in which I swim. Of course I get it. I've got to tell you, I had no idea. Mm. I really had no idea. You know, we have vague inklings. You know, occasionally we'd get newspaper stories smuggled in where we'd see protests and demonstrations and so on. But that was a tiny fraction of what was going on. You know, I, I just assumed that the newspapers were picking up, you know, cherry-picking those rare moments when the story actually did strike the, you know, strike public view. But, but no, it was always like that. I'm still both deeply moved but also a bit gobsmacked by it all. Did it help you get through that difficult time? I mean, it, it's just hard to imagine more than 400 days, is that right? Yeah, 400 days exactly. Mm. Um, yeah, it did, of course it did. The greatest fear of anyone in prison is that you've forgotten that people no longer are no longer aware about what's happened to you, that you disappear in some kind of information black hole. And so knowing that there was always that constant interest was, was hugely important. But the other thing is also was understanding that this wasn't about us personally, that this was about... You don't think? No, I don't think it was. There were, there were several narratives. First of all, clearly, as I said, there was no connection between the evidence and, mm. and, and the charges. And so there had to be something else going mm. on there. And couldn't people have said, well, maybe it's because you guys were working for Al Jazeera. You know, Al Jazeera had been accused of siding with the Muslim Brotherhood and therefore you're part of that, caught up in that kind of wider conspiracy. And I felt that if that was the case, why would the Egyptians come after an Australian and two Egyptian producers? made no sense. If you wanted to make a conspiracy about Qatari malfeasance in Egypt, then, then there were other better ways of doing it. And again, if it was about Al Jazeera's alleged support for the Brotherhood, again, why arrest an Australian who'd only been in the country for two weeks and had no real connections at all with the Brotherhood? Again, if you wanted to make that case, there are plenty of others who are much better placed to, that, that you could have built a conspiracy around. 
And so the more I thought about it, the more I realised this is this wasn't about anything we had done. It's what about what we'd represented. That was press freedom. That, that the government was simply trying to intimidate all journalists that were operating and sending a very clear message. You know, you you, you will not speak to the Muslim Brotherhood. And do you think that it worked in the long term? Well, you have a look at the coverage now. You have a look at the numbers of journalists that are based in Cairo, the numbers of foreign correspondents based in Cairo. Cairo used to be the hub for regional coverage. It no longer is. Very few news bureaus have a permanent presence there. The authorities have locked up and have threatened and intimidated pretty much anybody who is doing what we consider to be authoritative, credible journalism. It's almost impossible to operate. And local journalism has also been brutally hammered. Anybody that questions or challenges the authorities is either in prison or in exile. It's a different landscape that we're in now. How far away is Egypt from Australia, for example, and the, well, the pressures there, do you think? It, it, clearly, Australia is not Egypt and not about to become Egypt anytime soon. But, and there is a but here, if you think about what happened to us in the abstract, where the government used national security legislation and framed it so loosely that it could be interpreted in a way that criminalised what would normally have been considered as legitimate journalism, then we're seeing actually the same kinds of trends taking place here in Australia. Ever since 9-11, Australia has passed more than 70 pieces of national security legislation, more than any other country on earth, and a lot of those are so loosely drawn that they criminalise legitimate journalism. And this is not an abstract idea, you know. When we saw those raids by the Australian Federal Police on uh, News Corp and ABC journalists, I realised that, th that this, this was always going to be coming. In fact, I've started some research programs here at UQ looking at precisely these problems. I've got some researchers over at the law school examining the ways in which those national security laws intrude on, on press freedom. I've got another researcher at the School of Communications and Arts looking at the way the experience, the lived experience of journalists and the way that their work is becoming ever more constrained by national security legislation. We could see that coming. And so even though Australia and Egypt are two very different places, the political trends, the political imperatives which are driving an increasing security state and in the process limiting press freedom, limiting journalistic freedom, limiting freedom of speech and civil liberties are the same. The same imperatives are there. And, and so understanding that has actually made me feel quite concerned. It sounds like you're saying really that erosion of laws has led to the situation that we're in now, that erosion, gradual erosion of press freedom in those security laws. That is a fair conclusion. Mm. We're, we're, and I'm, I'm not entirely sure, I'm not prepared to say whether this is a conspiracy or an accident. I think both sides of politics have felt the need, felt the political pressure to enact national security legislation that, that protects Australia's physical health. You know, the, it would be political suicide for a politician to stand up and say, I think this proposed national security bill is going too far, that it intrudes on press freedom, that we shouldn't rush to pass this because I'm concerned about what it says about the institutions of our democracy and then a week later have a bomb go off and him be accused of being soft on national security, of placing Australians' lives at risk. That would be political suicide. And so there was a really strong political imperative on both sides of the House to pass these laws. But here's the thing. I think if we think of national security as protecting both the physical 
safety of ordinary Australians and our infrastructure, but also about protecting the institutions that have created Australia, that made Australia one of the most prosperous, peaceful and safest places on the planet. If we need to protect that as well, then we need to make sure that we protect one of the most important institutions of that system, and that's press, a free press. Now, at the moment, I think we've been allowing press freedom to, to erode in that system. And that's why I think we're not managing this issue of national security well at all. How do we do that, Peter? How do we do that, particularly when there's quite a bit of cynicism, I think, in the public about the role of journalism in Australia? Yeah, I know. And Waleed Ali wrote a piece in The Guardian, which I thought was interesting, in which he said, you know, posed a not-so-rhetorical question. He said, hands up, who's concerned about the AFP raids on, on Australian journalists? And he didn't have anything particularly to, to, to give a clear answer, but he said, I, you know, his bet was that not many people would, would be particularly worried, and I, I'm inclined to agree. But I also think that the answer you get depends on the question you ask. And if we ask Australians, hands up those of you who would feel perfectly comfortable without a free press, who think that all we need to run our democracy, all we need about for information about what takes place inside government are the Facebook posts and Twitter feeds of our politicians and senior civil servants. If, hands up, you know, who is comfortable with that idea? And I don't think you'd see too many hands either. I think most people would understand that even though the media works imperfectly, even though they don't trust us a lot of the time, and for reasons that I completely understand, the alternative is a good deal worse. And it's changing that perspective, and we all have a role to play in that, I suppose, and restoring the faith, maybe, yeah, in that role of journalism. We do need to. We've got a lot of work to do as journalists. We all have to do that. We all have to raise our game. But there are also all sorts of structural reasons why I think we've landed in this situation as well. It's beyond the control of journalists. Well, I suppose the cutbacks have played into it too, that the well, journalists yeah. are completely so unrestrained. Yeah. Well, not only the cutbacks. Mm. I mean, the cutbacks have happened because the business models are broken mm. and the business models are also prioritising clicks. And, of course, mm -hmm. we all know that the sorts of stories that generate clicks are stories that are salacious, you know, mm. that the stories that prioritise polemic over over analysis, rumour over fact. I mean, look, I, the front page of the Daily Telegraph the other day uh, was about shock horror, the secret text messages or the messages that American soldiers were sending on Tinder to Australian girls when they arrived on the ships in Sydney Harbour. You know? I've got to be honest, I clicked on that. <laughs> but that's the, those are the kinds of stories that generate clicks. Mm, not the stories not, from Mogadishu. Not the stories from Mogadishu, <laughs> not the stories about the local council debate, about about whether to build a car park, or, or not the, the, the stories about the court cases. You know, mm. These sorts of stories are uh, perhaps tedious, not exciting, not sexy, they don't generate clicks, but... We need those stories if we're going to function as a democracy. But those aren't the ones that make newspapers money. And as hard as we might try, it's really difficult for editors to commission, to send a journalist off to do a, an in-depth investigation into some obscure corner of state government when he knows that he'll get four or five times the amount of attention on a story about what American sailors are up to when they come when they sail into Sydney Harbour. 
it, it's just the way that the system, way that, that the digital world now functions. And I think we need to think very hard about how that works if we really want the kind of journalism yeah. that will serve our democracy. And how we place value on those stories. It's almost, I've tried philosophically to think about this, how we place money on the environment. You know, we've had to grapple with that. Maybe it's a similar well, kind I, of... No, I disagree. Yeah. I, I, I think it's a mistake. You see, you, you say how we place money on the environment, mm. where we need to, to monetize. Everyone keeps talking about the, the, <laughs> the business models for journalism. Yes. And if we talk about business models, it is it, the underlying assumption is that it's okay to consider news as a commodity to be bought and sold. And I think, well, think about it in these terms. If, if we prioritize only those stories which are popular, then we'll only end up with the McDonald's of news. Mm -hmm. Now we all know that if all we consume is McDonald's, we'll end up with diabetes. <laughs> And so you've got to eat your greens. <laughs> you've got to have your spinach. You've got to have some some salads and some broccoli from time to time. Sorry to have a bit of McDonald's. It's, it's okay for some McDonald's, McDonald's from time to time. That's great. <laughs> you, you, we all love it. We all need it. You know, it's, 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 there's nothing wrong with it. But you've also got to have a balanced diet. And the same goes for our news. And that's but, what we need to argue for. And that's what we need to yeah. argue for. We need to recognise the importance of news as a public good. We need to understand and remember why it matters to our democracy. If we constantly think of it as a business product, then we will end up, we'll end up with news services, absolutely. But what we will wind up with is more and more news that looks like that headline in the, in the Telegraph, those salacious stories about American soldiers or you know, anyone who wants to look into the, the Daily Mail, we'll get a glimpse of what a future might look like. And that serves only one tiny small function of what news needs to needs to serve. Is it possible to do that though in a profit-driven model? I mean not no, just the ABC not. or SBS? Or... No, I think, well, <laughs> not in a profit-driven model. I think we need to, I think we need to redesign the system from the ground up. Let me put it to you this way. At the moment what's happened is the digital environment has evolved in ways that have been driven by tech entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley to do one thing and one thing only and that's harvest our attention so that they can make money off it. And I'm not being critical of that. They've, that's what they set out to do, and they do that remarkably well. But as a consequence, our news organisations are forced to fit into that environment, forced to tie themselves into all sorts of pretzels to try and, and, and survive and exist in that world, and, and survive in a system that is not fit for purpose. It wasn't designed for our civic good. It was designed for their profit, not our democratic health. And so what we need to be thinking about is what we need from our journalism. We need to think about what our journalism has to provide in a functioning democracy. And if we can agree on that, and I'd actually reckon that most people would, would have a fairly common understanding about what good journalism should look like. You know, accurate, independent, fair, timely, deeply reported, that covers things that we might not necessarily all be interested in, but that we need to know about that is fearless in its investigations, all of those sorts of good classic things that you will see on the MEAA's code of conduct, for example. If we can all agree on what we need from our journalism, then we should be saying, well, how do we design a system that delivers that outcome? How do we design a legal, technological and political environment 
that supports that kind of journalism. And then I think we'll come closer to, to an answer. I think we'll, we'll come closer to a kind of conversation that we need to have to, to deliver good journalism and, so, and journalism that, that is sustainable over the long term. Thank you so much, Peter, for joining us on the streets of your town. The uh, Journo Project, it's just uh, so important to have these conversations. I think to wrap up, what would you say to students, I suppose, or younger people really trying to emulate perhaps what you've done or what, what do you say to them in this fractious environment that we've just been speaking about? Well, I think there's good news and bad news for the future. You know, the, the, the bad news is that it's... It, I don't think anybody really knows quite what journalism is going to look like in future. It's, 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 we all get, it's easy for us to get a bit depressed and grim about it all. But I also think it, it's worth reminding ourselves of something really fundamental, that from the moment that humans have had the capacity to speak, we've had storytellers. We've had people whether they're bards or, or you know, wandering minstrels or storytellers or, or journalists or whatever. We've always needed people to go out to gather stories of the world around us, to help us understand and make sense of the world, to keep us up to date with what's taking place around our own little social sphere. And we will always need them. That was Professor Peter Grester, UNESCO Chair in Journalism and Communications at the University of Queensland and also founding member and director of the Alliance for Journalists' Freedom. Streets of Your Town is produced by Nance Haxton, aka The Wandering Journo, with production assistance from Michael Adams. That's it for this episode. I'm Nance Haxton. Stay up to date with the latest episode of Streets of Your Town by subscribing on your podcast app on iTunes or SoundCloud. See you next time.